You're listening to the Belly Dance Geek Clubhouse at bellydancegeek.com. Hello, everybody. This is Nadira Jamal, and welcome to episode 55 of the Belly Dance Geek Clubhouse. The Clubhouse is a place where dancers can get together and geek out on all of those things that are hard to get in classes and on DVDs. If you want help with the one, so things like moves and combos and choreographies, it's really easy to find resources. But if you want to dig into the why and the how, so things like business, culture, composition, ethics, musicality, that's trickier to find. So every month I interview a different guest expert on a different geeky topic, and we always have time for you to ask questions so you can geek out too. So if you think that knowledge and creativity go together like chocolate and peanut butter, you are in the right place. And this episode tonight is being sponsored by the Belly Dance Bundle, which is a heavily discounted bundle of amazing belly dance products from dancers around the world. They're all online and all available to work through at your own pace. I'm one of the contributors and so are a lot of the previous Clubhouse guests. If you're interested and you happen to be listening to this in time, um, you may want to check out the giveaway that they're running right now for eight sets of finger symbols from Turquoise International, as well as the first copy of my revamped online program, Lace. Um, for that one, you have to sign up by Wednesday, September 27th at midnight Eastern time. That's available at bellydancegeek.com slash zill hyphen giveaway. Or if you're listening later on, just check out at bellydancegeek.com slash bundle. My guest tonight is Sharizad. She's a full-time dancer from the USA, specializing in rock sharky and regional styles of dance from North Africa and the Middle East. She's currently based in Cairo and tours internationally to teach and perform. You can check out her website at sharzadrocks.com. That's S-H-A-H-R-Z-A-D-R-A-Q-S.com. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash sharzaddancer. So welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you today. I'm right. excited to be talking to you. <laughs> awesome. So today, Sharzat's going to be talking about the complicated interplay between markets, audiences, and professional dancers. And this is vaguely related to an episode that we did really early on. I think it was episode nine, where we had Julie Eason talking about the professional spectrum and the different ways that there are to be a professional dancer. But in that episode, we focused more on kind of the aspects of marketing and building your business. And today we're going to be focusing more on how it affects the art form itself and the artist. So both how your dancing develops, how the dance develops, and how the community grows. So before we get started, I always like to ask my guests about their origin stories. So Sharz, can you tell us about how you got started in belly dance? Yes, sure. Um, it's been a long history. <laughs> so I will try to give a pretty abbreviated version so, um, so I don't eat up a lot of time, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I have had the privilege and the really unique experience of never having another job other than dance. Um, I started taking classes in belly dance when I was around 11 or 12 years old. Um, I was exposed to it first on TV. I clearly remember it was a commercial for Vina and Nina. <laughs> belly dance videos and I don't know what it was that like went off in my like preteen mind I was like this is it this is great I'm I'm gonna do this and it's gonna be awesome 
So I was like, Mom, you have to buy me these videos. So she bought the videos, and it was like three different videos in the package, just like belly dance workouts, general stuff. But I loved it, and it came with a CD, and I just I could not stop listening to the music, and I just had the best time. So I started asking her for um, for actual in-person classes, and she knew that there was like a local restaurant that had dancers, so she called them up and found one of the local teachers uh, named Maya. That was my first lady that I took class with, and um, we showed up, and here I was. I was always a giant child because I'm very tall. I showed up, and it was me, this awkward giant child and um, a bunch of middle-aged women. So my mom was like, I'm going to take this class. This sounds fun. So we actually started together because my mom would drive me to the classes anyway. Um, From there, it was uh, just nonstop, I guess. I moved up in the class levels really quickly because I would just practice all the time. And I got really into the local community, going to different hoplas and going to class with different teachers and different styles, trying like tribal, trying American cabaret and trying Egyptian stuff. But when I did start to get exposed to the Egyptian stuff, like that's what I got really into, the folklore and the Egyptian styling of Oriental dance. So my first exposure to that would be with uh, Habiba of Philadelphia was the first time I really got like folklore type training for Egyptian dance. And I just, I loved it. Um, So anyway, after bumping around to a bunch of different teachers and starting to take more workshops with like, quote-unquote, bigger-name teachers. Um, I was getting into my late teens, and that's when I started um, performing professionally. I started performing first um, around 17 years old in, like, restaurants and stuff. And around that time, I did teach a few, like, really casual classes, but I was spending a lot more time um, performing in like the Philadelphia area since that's where I grew up. And then pretty quickly after that, um, I moved up to New York City and started performing full time in the live music nightclub scene there, which was pretty good at that. Um, So I was like around 18 when I started doing that. And then after a little while, I moved down to D.C., uh, Baltimore area, to continue doing the same thing, like a lot of full-time performing at a lot of um, Arabic nightclubs mostly, but also some restaurants. Um, and D.C. is where I started teaching really regular classes. I D.C. is an amazing area for belly dance because it has a ton of really great teachers, and it has two studios that um, focus specifically in belly dance. Um, And I got to work at both of them, one and then switching to the other to teach um, pretty full-time intensive classes 
so <laughs> I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying to think of this in a way that's gonna not get super lost. Okay, so anyway, by this time I was in like my early twenties and I was going back and forth between mostly teaching and mostly performing. This is when I started to have a lot of content be put out online. Um, I made a conscious effort to put a lot of stuff up on YouTube and a lot of stuff up on Facebook. And this is around the time that I started getting more workshop jobs nationally, nationally, and then internationally. Um, and it was all uphill from there. <laughs> It was uh, been a long journey so far, so it's it's hard to try and condense it. But as far as work-wise, that's kind of how it progressed. Like nightclub work, then trying to teach some classes and developing the teaching skills, then starting to really push um, on social media and things like this to get more of an international following and then starting to slowly travel and teach. And that's where I'm at right now. Cool. And how did you end up in Cairo? So I had been traveling to Cairo starting from when I was about 17. The first time I came, um, well, let me take one little step back. There were two teachers that I was taking with in the U.S. I was taking with um, Norhan Sharif, and I was taking with uh, Fatin Salama, and they had both hosted uh, Ratya Hassan like a bunch of times for workshops. So I had met her through that. I had gotten to take some private lessons with her, and she encouraged me, of course, to come to her festival in Cairo. So... I went to one, to one of the winter courses. She does the big festival in the summer, and then she does like a smaller, more intensive course in the winter. So I did that when I was about 17. And um, of course, I had an amazing time, and I loved it. So every couple of years, I would be going back and uh, just continuing to take classes. In 2011, January 2011, I actually took a trip there, and a couple people at that point had been starting to really encourage me to try to seek out work there. But literally, when I was there, the revolution started. <laughs> and we had to pack up our stuff and, like, get out. I was there with my mom because um, we were doing some touristy stuff first, and then I was going to stay and take some classes and see about work stuff, but we had to get out. So to be honest, that was like a really discouraging point, but looking back on it, it needed, I wasn't ready at that point. Like it wouldn't have worked out very well. So anyway, I focused, I changed my focus at that point more into teaching when I got back home. So I took a step back from performing and really, really focused on building my teaching skills. I got my Pilates certification, which helped a lot with explaining movements and um, anatomy training and stuff like that, which was ended up being really priceless 
to my teaching skills. And um, anyway, a couple years later, um, going to another Ra'ya Hassan workshop in the States, and this time she brought one of my absolute favorite dancers from Egypt, who's this Brazilian woman named Soraya Zayed. And they were both really encouraging. They were like, oh, come visit, please. Everything's great now, and we'll have a fun time. And I was like, yeah, I want to go back. So I went back, and I spent a lot of time that trip with Ratya. She let me and Norhan Sharif stay at her house, which was really amazing to get to talk to that lady a bunch. And I also spent a lot of time with Soraya. She took me around to a lot of her jobs and um, introduced me to a lot of people. So basically, she was being very encouraging of um, me coming. She said, oh, I think you'll have a nice time and you'll do well here and your style is the right kind of style that I think would work well for the audiences here. And she introduced me to a manager in Cairo who had me do a few auditions and was basically just like, here's an open invitation whenever you want to come. Like, you can work. I'll hook you up. And I just decided to take the plunge because there wasn't really a reason not to. If things went well, it would be great. If I just ended up coming and learning a bunch, like, it would also be great. So I decided to get rid of my apartment in D.C., sell a bunch of my stuff, leave my stuff in my parents' house, and travel out to Egypt to try out the expat life. Cool. All right. So I'd like to jump into the interview proper. And, you know, before I get into this, I want to give a little bit of background on why I asked you to talk about this. Uh, not why I asked you, because obviously you're really qualified to talk about this, but why I have this on the brain. Um, and that's that my mentors were mostly people who danced in the 70s. And for them, performing was a viable full-time occupation for the majority of dancers that were out there. Um, you know, one of my mentors as late as the 80s, you know, was able to make a living just with restaurants and party gigs. And it seems like today it's a considerably less viable um, path for a lot of people. And so it seems like a lot of the money is more in teaching. And so more often uh, are the people that we're selling to are other dancers or people who are interested in becoming dancers. So I'm very interested in how, who's your, who you're selling to and what your primary services affects um, you as an artist, you as a business person and the dance itself. So I'd like to ask you about some of the aspects of that. So- Yeah, I think it's a really, a really interesting subject and it's definitely something that I have been observing like especially because I had the the luck to actually get to do a bunch of performing first and then making my way into like the teaching realm so it's a super interesting subject <laughs> and I'm so happy you wanted to talk about it. 
Awesome. So I think I'd like to hit these kind of one facet at a time, but if we do, you know, branch off into other things, please keep talking because that's usually when my guests get to the good stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, what do you think some of the differences are in being a full-time pro versus somebody who operates professionally and gets paid, but has other sources of income as well? I think when, not speaking from experience, <laughs> but this is um, just the perspective I have. I think that when this is not your main source of income, you definitely have a lot more freedom to treat it more as a passion as opposed to just strictly this is what I'm doing for money. Um, you don't have to worry about maybe doing things you don't really want to do, being like more marketable to people because it's not your main source of income. I feel like when you're when you're doing this more as just your hobby, you get to be a be a little selfish. <laughs> and not in a bad way. When you're a hobbyist dancer and you're just doing this for fun, the whole focus is inward. You are doing things motivated from what you want and what you like and what makes you happy. And when you make that switch into being a full-time professional dancer, you have to consider more um, what your audience wants and what's going to make them happy, what's going to make you more attractive as far as being hired for different parties or different workshops. So the focus switches from inward to a more outward focus, if that makes sense. And I think that's the biggest difference. And for the record, as somebody who is a part-time pro, um, I will tell you that all of the considerations that a full-time pro has to take into account definitely still affect your opportunity. So it's not that we, you know, don't have to consider those things. It's that we have the luxury of not doing it if we're willing to give up opportunities for. Yes, no, completely. And I know a lot of dancers that aren't making their entire living from this, but I mean, still want to take it seriously and on a professional level. So you're completely right. But, but yes, like the, the point is you have the luxury of, of really choosing what you want to do and what you want to focus on as opposed to being driven by like, ah, I need to pay my rent. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, what are some of the things that um, you have to do that you wish you didn't, or that you might choose to do less of if you, let's say you, you know, won the small time lottery. I don't know if you, I don't know if anybody knows these things, but, um, in New York State, which is where my family lives, they have this scratch ticket where you get $1,000 a week for life, which is like not actually that much money, like, but it's enough that you could just pay your bills and then like spend your time the way you wanted to. So like, imagine you won that, <laughs> right? And so you didn't have to worry about paying your rent. Are there any particular things that um, you would do less of or you would stop doing if you didn't have to make your living at it? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> or maybe another way of phrasing I, that is if somebody was considering going full time, what would you want them to make sure that they're prepared to do? Um, I think you really need to love what you're doing. 
I don't think anybody who takes even even part-time professional dancers like I don't think that you would be putting in the time and the effort that it takes even just on a part-time level but especially on a full-time level to do this if you really if you didn't really really love dancing you know what I mean um but what can get a little hard sometimes especially uh, I guess it's both dancing uh in a performance uh genre but also in the teaching world the main problem I have sometimes is getting really fatigued not just physically but like mentally and that's really hard I think in an artistic job because you always want to be giving your best on stage you want to be giving your best to your students in class but it's a very very draining job so I think the hardest part about doing it full-time is those nights where you just want to curl up and rest and you have to push yourself and like go out and and do your job. I guess it's the same in a lot of jobs, but I think that's especially hard in an artistic job when you're really not feeling up to it physically and mentally, but you still have to push and get up on stage and smile and and entertain people. So I never get sick of the actual dancing, of course, because I love dancing, but I think that is something that a lot of professional dancers experience at a certain point is just like a lot of fatigue, but you can't, you can't really take a break or if you do, it, it can't be for very long. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Besides just the money you're not making during your break, sometimes that makes it harder to get more if you're just not in the loop anymore. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. You know, I actually did take um, a semi-break for about five months a couple of years ago where I just cut off all my internet commitments, essentially. I still taught, um, but I gave myself a break from all of this, like, more public stuff. And it was very refreshing, but I could not have done that if I didn't have a part-time day job. And yeah. So I definitely yeah. feel that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Awesome. It's it's really nice to be able to do that artistically because you can refresh your mind. You can put your focus, like I said, more inward. Sometimes I need that to find new inspiration. I need to kind of distance myself from thinking about it in a work perspective and just think about it in a more organic, what do I like to do? How do I want to move? You know what I mean? So sometimes taking a break is so nice artistically, but if it's your full-time job, it's very hard to find that time. Mm -hmm. And do you have any tips on how to get that refreshing back in when you can't take a substantial break? I so often find myself um, being refreshed just by watching things like going out to a show. I have the luxury, obviously, now of going out to see some amazing shows. And sometimes just seeing a dancer I love on stage is enough to like reignite my excitement and like get ideas flowing in my mind um but watching a lot of old video footage because i am a huge fan of like old old belly dancers so sometimes just marathoning that stuff 
listening to the music that I really, really adore can get me back in the in the mood <laughs> to to create and everything. Cool. I just have to see Dina, to be honest. <laughs> That's the easiest <laughs> thing for me to do. I go see one of her shows and it's done. I'm like so excited and so inspired again. So I think it's, cool. you just have to find something that inspires, that really inspires you to kind of reignite it. At least that's what works for me. Nice. Now, if we start looking at another facet, you know, how do you think that making your living primarily as a performer differs from when you have a more mixed income stream, like teaching locally or touring for workshops, et cetera? I think that your scope of work as a dancer really, well, I guess it works both ways. It it will influence your style a lot, but jobs you get are also going to be dictated slightly by the style that you are best in. Because I think there are definitely dancers with a personal style that are more appealing to other dancers and there are dancers whose style is more appealing to the general public and both are valid and gorgeous but for some reason you just see certain styles fitting in with different groups and developing that way which has been the most interesting thing for me honestly working in workshops and classes as well as performing is seeing how different those things can be and the different things dancers really enjoy to see versus versus the general public. And what are some of those things, what are some of the differences that you notice? Oh, so many differences. <laughs> um, the first that would be pretty big is the aesthetic differences between um, working for the public versus working for other dancers. But that varies also so much depending on who you're performing for if you're a performer and where you're performing. I think there's a huge range in aesthetics in belly dance can like across the teaching world and the performing world. I was talking to one of my friends today um, who's not involved in, in dance about costuming a little bit. And I was mentioning like there are certain things that I would wear in one context, like say performing for an Arabic audience that I wouldn't necessarily wear performing for dancers because I don't think they would like it as much. I think that, well, not think, because I've had actually this, um, this happened before. I've always liked really sexy costumes. I, I'm crazy about costumes in general, but I've never been very shy about, um, showing a lot of cleavage or showing a lot of leg. Um, and that's something that has never been a problem in Arabic nightclubs, but has been a problem at times working for other dancers that they like, they really 
some people really have a problem with it. So aesthetics is a, a big thing that changes when you work for other dancers versus the general public, especially working for an Arabic audience, because they really expect a certain look for the dancer, whereas when you're working for other dancers, obviously we're a lot more accepting of different looks, different ages, different body types, whereas in certain places where you're working in the entertainment industry, they really want a really specific look for the dancer, and that changes a lot depending on what country you're in and what kind of venues you're working in. So, yeah. Awesome. That's, I would love to difference. dig into some of the specifics there. Um, w would you be willing to tell us a little bit more about some of the differences yeah, in, in like very specific um, context? Just uh, don't be afraid to ask me really specific questions because I have a tendency to go off on tangents. Tangents <laughs> are good. Let's do it. <laughs> um, when I am dancing mostly just for um, performance reasons, one of the first things I consider is my venue and the audiences that I'm going to be performing for there. And I'll just talk towards like a costuming, I don't know, a costuming theme for now and style next because the style is also. <laughs> important and complicated mm -hmm. but anyway um even just in in the states from venue to venue i would completely change the nature of my my costuming um i worked for and still work for a really wide range of clientele and um just depending on where they're from I would change a lot about my costuming. For Americans, I would actually cover up a little more because um, I found that American audiences got a little bit uncomfortable with more sexy costuming. And um, I think that it was easier for American audiences to identify belly dancer with like the really classic fluffy skirt, Brawn bell, lots of fringe, lots of beads. Whereas if I switched into a nightclub with mostly Egyptian clientele, I feel like I could wear a more modern Egyptian costume. So like sleeker fit, maybe the belt and the skirt were one piece. Maybe there was a higher slit. Maybe it was a lower cut bra. Because they're used to seeing dancers that way in like the music videos and everything. Um, but moving into other, um, other clientele from other parts of the world, this was interesting, especially in DC, I would work for a lot of Indian clientele and Pakistani and they wanted a belly dancer, but they wanted the belly dancer to be really much more covered up than I was used to working. So almost like no bra, like a trolley or a shirt that really covered a lot of the chest. Sometimes they didn't want the belly showing, um, no legs showing. 
so it was just really interesting to see how how different the tastes were um depending on the clientele and that's something i'm still i still try to be really sensitive to and of course it's not just country to country like you might have different experiences with the same group of people like some Americans might be cool with this or cool with this, depending on what area you're in or even what restaurant you're in. You never know. But this has just been um, personally what I've experienced. All right. So we've talked about some of the costume stuff. What about some of the different ways that you would dance or present yourself? The biggest thing I would say that um, affects my style of dance um, is the actual dance venue itself. And this is where I see the biggest difference in style coming from. Um, now, it's really uh, common to see, especially if you travel around and do a lot of workshops and stuff. Now, it's really common to see dancers who have only ever danced for other dancers in like a gala show or a Hofla setting. So usually like six minutes or less. If you're at some of these big workshops, usually you're up on a stage and you have a lot of room. You're separated from the audience. You only have a short amount of time. So this dictates a lot of what you do in your performance. Especially at the international gala shows, I think the girls, they want to show off in that short amount of time. Um, you want to pack as much, almost like a competition setting, they pack as much kind of um, excitement and all of their best moves and everything they can into this short little um snippet of time because that's all you have to showcase yourself on stage and the use of the stage completely changes also when you're up on a raised platform you actually have a lot of space and you're separated from the audience it's not as easy or as important to get the same kind of rapport with your audience in a really short time up on a big stage as opposed to in a nightclub set when you're right up next to people for a long amount of time. So I think the focus changes a lot. What you're basing your moves on and why you're doing the moves you're doing, how you're pacing yourself, it changes a lot due to this context. Whereas if you're a nightclub performer, you usually have at least 20 minutes um, in a lot of Arabic clubs and especially overseas, you're used to doing 30 minutes to an hour on stage. So if you came out guns blazing, did all your awesome moves, threw yourself on the ground, like did all this crazy stuff, all these crazy shimmies in the first five minutes, and you continued in that style of dancing, you would die. <laughs> we have time to pace ourselves when we're doing a nightclub show, you can focus a lot more on the different people in your audience and connecting with people and going through different 
musical and dance styles because you have the time. So you can really focus on, okay, I'm doing a really slow, juicy toxime, and I can just do like two moves because I have all this time. And now I'm going to do shabby and play with the people in my audience. And now I'm going to do drum solo or whatever. So that, I think, is the biggest thing that changes the style of dance between the workshop and Hofla and class world and the nightclub dancing world. Proximity to audience, the size of your stage, and also the amount of time that you're going to be dancing. And what about who's in the audience? Um, have you seen, let's say we're in a nightclub setting, but it's a it's mostly general public versus mostly Middle Eastern folks. Are, do you notice any different behavior? That's not the right way to put it. Um, do you <laughs> feel uh, like you, there are different demands on you in a situation like that? Oh, yes, completely. And I think that you can really sell yourself to different audiences if you're very aware of what they're going to respond well to. Um, after the costuming thing, the next biggest thing that I tweak a lot for different audiences is obviously the music choices. Um, when I did a lot of shows for mostly American audiences, I would go for a style, not just of music, but also of dance that was more I don't, uh, gimmicky. <laughs> I don't know. Um, more flashy and fun and like more showing off and big exaggerated movements with really upbeat music, mostly without lyrics, because obviously if you come out to an American audience and you want to do like some slow emotional song with Arabic lyrics, they probably will be a little confused. Maybe they'll think it's it's nice, but I don't think that that's the right kind of choice for that, that setting. Um, when you start performing for uh, North Air African and Arab and Levantine customers, it's really beneficial to know a little bit of background about the different areas and the different styles of music and a little bit, if you can, about the social dance that goes on in those different regions. So, for example, if I'm working for a Lebanese crowd, I would throw more Lebanese pop songs in more Nancy Ajram and stuff like that and always make sure I had like a really poppy Debka song because that's the music that they like really respond to well. For Egyptians, of course, <laughs> for me, it's the most fun because they really like the range of music. They love seeing shabby, but they also love seeing classic stuff. Like, they never get sick of the classics, like Abdel Halim and Um Kulthum songs. So I think you have more freedom, depending on the venue also, but you have more freedom with them to choose, like, more of a variety of different kinds of music. Um, yeah, so I really 
base the structure of my show a lot on who is going to be in the audience. Mm-hmm. All right, and then one more, you know, audience that we haven't really touched on yet is when you have a whole lot of dancers in the house. Um, and that's obviously the norm in the galas and haflas that you mentioned, but certainly in my area, we're seeing that even in a lot of the very long-standing venues, uh, like the Greek restaurant that's been around since the 70s with live music every night, uh, we're getting a higher and higher proportion of dancers in the audience. So we're dancing with the same bands in the same spaces, but who's making up that audience is changing. Uh, Do you have any Mm -hmm. observations about what dancers respond to versus the general public or a Middle Eastern audience? The (laughs) The most interesting thing working a lot for other dancers and especially in the past few years is learning what they want in different places. Um, The dance communities in different countries I have found are very different. Like they, they have trained in different styles. They're really influenced by the exposure to which teachers, whether they've been like more American teachers or tribal teachers or Egyptian teachers, what they expect has a lot to do with where their kind of belly dance culture has come from, like in their country, if that makes sense. Um, So I actually feel pressure to dance different ways in different places. And I try not to let it affect my style too much, but I'll also usually use that as a basis for like choosing what kind of songs I'm going to do because some countries they respond really well to one kind of music and not another. But um, let's say in America, I actually feel very free because I think there's a lot of different interests in the States as far as dance goes right now. And it's really cool. So I feel like I can come out and have a fair amount of freedom in what I do and know that the dancers are going to be like really cool and appreciative. Whereas in some countries, they respond more to like really theatrical stuff in one place versus like really emotional stuff in one place versus they just want tabla solo in one place. So um, going around and, and seeing the really specific and big range of interests in different places has been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and are there any other big changes in the dance that you'd like to talk about as, as you face different audiences? or any other aspects of how you would operate or the choices that you would make? Um, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, I still feel like a baby in this industry. And the more I travel and see, the more I feel like I have to learn. And especially having spent so many years going in between different belly dance communities, I feel it hard for me personally to distinguish, let's say, like the changes and that have been slowly happening in one place. I think I'm probably a little less sensitive to that 
um, because I'm going so much in between different dance communities, so it all gets mixed up in my brain. But um, there are a lot of trends that I do see coming out style-wise, and this is mostly on the international circuit. There are certain dancers that seem to really shape the style that a lot of people are taking. You'll get one dancer, let's say, this is a big example, okay? Let's say Rhonda mm-hmm. Hamill, um, Egyptian dancer, very, very modern, stylized um, style, Egyptian style, very mixed with modern dance, very mixed with folklore dance not exactly viable in Egypt, this style, but on the workshop circuit to foreign dancers, people absolutely love it. And you can see a huge effect that just this one dancer has had. At at some festivals, you can see her style and her movements in like an entire room of students sometimes. There are certain teachers that have that effect now, um, and especially if they travel around a lot and uh, dancers are primarily taking their style, they kind of take on secondhand that style and then it gets passed on to all their students. That's a really interesting thing to see. Like one teacher can completely dictate the style of like a generation of of dancers in a certain place. And I guess you see that a little bit in the States too with dancers who have really, really developed training regimens that um, they'll certify people in those styles. You start to see more um, similar technique between large groups of dancers and similar musicality because they're basing it on like this one person they've learned from. I see that a lot. You can show up and be like, ah, this is where this lady studied from because all of her students use this movement and this way of interpreting the music. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I think that's interesting because, you know, one of the things that I remember my ears perking up when you mentioned it in the workshop that I met you in was um, that in the you know, kind of full-time performer context that you are in, distinguishing yourself from other dancers is a big part of what makes you successful rather than absorbing that style wholesale. Yes, completely. And that's a huge difference that I see between the dance community uh, and the, like, professional dancers. Of course, in the, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't categorize it like that because the teachers are professional also of course but between like the teaching market and the performing market let's say um of course you'll have performers that might try and copy each other a little bit to if they see something that's working for another dancer maybe they'll copy it of course this exists but i think in general it really is so important to your success to set yourself apart from others Um, because they don't want carbon copies. And in the workshop and teaching world, too, if you want to be like a standout 
new eye-catching person, it's a much better route to take to try and be very, very original than to copy another dancer. But I think it's very common, especially when you're taking classes, if you really focus a lot in classes with one person, of course, you're going to take on their technique and their way they work with the music and the way they work with their face. Um, but I think it's it's so important for that reason, if you really want to set yourself apart, to get around and train with as many people as possible. And also make sure you still have your own unique voice. I think as a professional, this is a really important thing. And are there other trends in the community or changes that you've seen happening over the course of your career, whether that's in the market or the dance community itself? Mm. Yes. <laughs> um, it's been interesting to come to Cairo in particular and see the the changes that are happening here, but it's also hard to recognize if there are a lot of changes or if it's the change in perspective that I have having been looking from the outside and then changing and being able to see things from the inside. I think that can, that switch of perspective is a huge one. Um, going from the outside to the inside and in, in any facet of the business here, I think it really changes your opinion a lot on a lot of things. But it does seem in Egypt that there's a lot of change in the venues and what people are looking for in dancers. Right now, it seems like there's a big influx of foreign dancers who aren't really trying to dance in an Egyptian way um, that are either mixing their style with Egyptian style or just doing their own thing. Um, but they're, they're being accepted and like finding success. And um, the venues are also changing a lot. And this, this seems to be the same in the States. Like, it's it seems like a lot of live music venues are drying up because definitely when I started and that wasn't even that long ago like I was working almost every show with a live band and just over the course of like five years or six years that really changed a lot where I was in the states and I've heard that from a few other dancers too um and in Egypt, it seems the same. It's like, of course, there's still so many live music opportunities, um, but it's shifting a little bit and there's a lot more um, opportunity for um, things like dancing to a CD on a bar and stuff like that, because now there's like a big influx of Western style nightclub trends. Um, but they still keep like a little Egyptian flavor. Like they'll have an electronic 
violin playing Arabic stuff on top of house music and they'll have a belly dancer on the bar. So this seems to be a new kind of venue for dance that wasn't there before, but it also changes the style of the dance. Like you're not dancing to traditional music anymore. You're dancing on a tiny little place (laughs) to techno music. It's very strange. But I think, like I said, I've heard the same from other dancers in the States about the live music. Um, I don't know. What what would you say? <laughs> that's certainly something we're seeing in my accurate. area. Yeah, we, we've still got a lot, but not as much as we, we just had a venue close last month. It's been open since mm-hmm. the 70s and it's, it's gone. Uh, and I've also seen um, a lot more shift from kind of those like family slash supper club restaurants where everybody comes and spends the whole night there versus uh, um, you're getting a lot more like hookah bars that have that kind of casual recorded music kind of situation. Yeah. I, yeah, (laughs) I saw the same thing in, in the areas that I had been working the same. So yeah, I think those are the biggest shifts I've seen performance wise. It's like a lot of shift in in the venues and like the kind of shows that they want from the the belly dancers. Now, I can't speak to where you are, but one of the things that we're seeing in my area is some demographic shifts in the audiences. Um, You know, when I was just starting to perform, there were still a lot of uh, like older folks from, I hate to use the word ethnic, refer to people because everybody's got an ethnicity but like from the local ethnic communities so you'd have like you know when I first started at the student night at my favorite place like every single Thursday the same group of like Armenians they were like 65 70 you know they sat at the same table every time talked to me every time Um, and it seems like that generation was a lot of the support for the dance because they knew what it was they were used to seeing it they identified it as theirs Mm mm-hmm and it seems like we're getting less and less of that in our audiences. Um, are you seeing any demographic shifts in the audiences that you're encountering in Egypt or when you're back in the States or as you travel? Um, nice thing about Egypt is I think there's always going to be the old timers that love the old music and everything. Um, but there is this like new young um demographic <laughs> the shabby and maharganat demographic of like young people that want to get out and party so that affects the way that you would be marketing yourself as a dancer and then shows um a lot of people are making a really good performance living right now like kind of focusing in that area um, a lot of foreign girls are coming in and having a lot of success doing like shabby music videos that are like silly and sexy and fun and then going and dancing at the western style nightclub getting up on like a bar or like a little stage and it's like hot music and then some shabby and then so, so I think the demographic of people that this is reaching or like the demand is from them that's had that effect on the dance 
like that has been the reason that these new venues have come into existence and changed a lot. And I'm sure that's had an effect in the States too. Like all these younger people like super into the hookah thing. They want to go out and they think it's really cool, but you wouldn't present dance in that kind of a venue in the same way that you would. And like you said, the old style, like supper club, you go and you do like a real show with like, I don't know, your full set, your entrance piece and your slow set and your Saidi stuff. And I'm sure that's where a lot of the shift is coming from. Mm -hmm. All right. And then, you know, over the course of your career, what kinds of changes have you seen in the belly dance community or communities? Um, to be honest, I have a hard, <laughs> I have a hard time wrapping my brain around this one just because I, I see something new and completely different, like every time I travel. So, like I said before, it's a little hard for me to if it's something like developing versus something I just haven't seen before. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in hearing any of those observations and then everybody can take those as they want. Mm -hmm. I think, um, like you said before, how most of your teachers were like full-time performers in the 70s in that era um i think probably the biggest shift in the quote-unquote like new generation of teachers that are getting out there um a lot of i see a lot of teachers on the scene who've never worked as a professional like performer i see a lot of teachers who have only ever worked for other dancers not that it's a bad thing, but it's a really interesting thing. One, because it's amazing that, like, you can do that, that there's that demand and that the community is, like, so strong and supportive like that. But it's really changing the style of the dance within the dance community, not having that context of having dance professionally, like, in nightclubs or whatever totally changes the style of dance and has a huge effect on what they teach to people. So you have um, whole groups of students now, especially in, in some countries where belly dance is a little bit newer. Um, places like China, they haven't had belly dance for that long. And you can really see when you go teach, where the influence for like their style is coming from. What's really interesting to see there is that um, most of the teachers they bring in now are from Russia, and most of the teachers in Russia have never worked professionally in a perf like public performance setting. Like their whole careers have been spent inside the belly dance community not all of course but most um so that has been really interesting to see because t 
totally changes the style of dance. And then it has a broad effect because you have so many people like training in this specific style. And I think that can, it's good and bad. It brings new inspiration and new ideas into the dance that sometimes are like really interesting and cool. But on the other hand, I think it can distance the dance more and more from its roots. If you haven't had that firsthand performance experience or haven't studied deeply in folklore, you've only studied from a dancer who her whole career has just been doing Oriental for three minutes, like on a big theater stage, it can really change the look and the feel of the dance and sometimes really remove it from its like um its roots i feel like one thing that i've had on the brain for a long time and one of the reasons why i was so interested in talking to you about this is that i feel like the development of the dance is not just controlled by who's doing it and who's playing the music but specifically on who's vetting it, right? Who is saying, do it this way, don't do it this way, we like this, we don't like this, this looks right to us, this looks wrong to us. And again, getting back to my teacher's generation, they were mostly dancing for Middle Easterners, or at least very mixed audiences. And so the folks who are telling them, do this, don't do this, hire her again, don't hire her again, it was, it had this kind of correcting force. So even though everybody was trying to be an individual and make their mark, and develop their own style, they had these pressures kind of keeping everybody along a path that was going in one direction, even if they were individuals acting on that. And I feel like a lot of that vetting is shifting to the dance community itself. And that's, uh, it's very, very different. We still have you, Sharzad? Okay, I think we might have lost her. All right, we're going to give Shannon another minute to get connected again. Um, in the meantime, um, while we're waiting for her to reconnect, um, if anybody has any questions for her, if you're listening on the webcast in particular um, and don't have audio, you can type in your questions in the text box at the right, and we'll come back to those at the end of the call. Um, or if you want to just start taking this time to thinking about what questions you'd like to ask, this would be a good opportunity. Oh, it looks like we've got her back. Let me unmute her. Hey, Sharzad, can you hear me? Hello. All right. Yeah, sorry about that. My call got dropped. <laughs> no problem. We'll edit that part out. <laughs> All right, so what was the last thing you remember hearing? Um, you were starting to talk about who's vetting the dance having a big effect on how the style has been developing. Yeah. So, you know, just to kind of get back to that point was that, you know, in my teacher's day, they were mostly performing either for Middle Easterners or for a very mixed audiences. And so while everybody was trying to be an individual and find their own voice and their own style, you still had this kind of like correcting pressure. Maybe correcting is not the right word, but um, you had the pressure of the audience kind of keeping everybody um, 
moving in a similar direction, even though the dance itself was growing and evolving. And I feel like mm -hmm. the dance community is taking on that role these days. And that creates very different market pressures and very different stylistic pressures. Has uh, that been your experience? Yes, <laughs> that has been my experience. And, um, oh, sorry, were you going to say nope. something? No, I was definitely waiting to hear from you. <laughs> um, one thing that I dislike is when teachers in the belly dance community, I've seen both. I've seen teachers like very encouraging of different styles and stuff. But I've also seen some teachers take a very strict approach as far as technique goes. Like you have to do it this way. You have to do this technique. You have to interpret the music this way. You have to do it like this. Um, I'm really not a fan of that kind of mentality because when you do travel around, not just in the dance community, but obviously when you go to countries of origin and you go and you watch dancers, you see how much creativity and how much um, variation there is from dancer to dancer. There are common themes that you see, but it's usually not what belly dancers are looking for. And I think that is what you were getting at um, from like Middle Eastern people and North African people being the ones who are vetting the dance. They're going to be looking for something so different than what dancers would be watching for. You know what I mean? They're going to be looking for things like how you express the music, your stage presence, and how you interact with the audience. They care about dance movements, but not in a sense of like, oh, she's doing the shimmy from her hips and not her knees. It's not right. You know what I mean? It's more like, oh, she didn't hear this subtle change in the rhythm and she didn't react, so I didn't feel it as much. They react on a more emotional level <laughs> um, or I should say a more almost subconscious level because this is a dance that they've grown up with from when they're little and they're used to it evoking certain feelings they're used to just subtle changes in the music and the style changing the way that the dancer's body reacts um, it's just a totally different perspective that they have on the dance because it's part of their culture and their heritage. We have such a different perspective on the dance. So it's, it's hard from an outsider perspective to come in and say, no, it has to be this way. And no, you have to do this technique this way. When you start traveling around, you realize how much room there really is for creativity, but you have to still be sensitive to where this is this is coming from. And I think that can get lost really easily, that sensitivity for the culture and the and the music. 
And are there specific things that you see that the dance community tends to value that either gets in the way of that or distracts us from that or, you know, is valid in itself, but doesn't necessarily help us do that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think just relating to what I said before, like too much of a technique focus at times. Um, too much of a technical approach while leaving out the other parts of the dance that are so important, which are like context, where is the music coming from? Like, what are the traditional movements you see to this? Um, I think the more that you disconnect and just focus on technique and like, oh, she didn't do her arabesque very good. <laughs> the the farther you kind of remove yourself from um, the more, let's say like quote unquote original context of the dance. Um, it's spawning really new and beautiful stuff. Um, but it's the more you focus on Western technique, Western props, Western music, like the farther you're drifting slowly away from um, the the original like purpose and meaning of this dance for the people who it comes from. And are there any other like pros or cons of you know, the dance community doing more and more of that vetting that you'd like people to think about? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, as a person who got really, really into folklore and stuff, um, pretty much immediately when I was taking dance classes, I, I think especially right now with how divided a lot of people in the world are, art is one way that without language or without anything, we can connect on such an amazing level. And I think coming in and learning a lot about the actual roots of this dance and the actual culture and the people and why they do what they do why this music has this meaning. It gives you a deeper understanding of, of someone else's culture, really like intricate, beautiful cultures. And I just, being such a geek for the background of this dance, it doesn't matter if you're going to perform exactly like they do in Egypt or exactly like they do in Lebanon, but it just seems really tragic to me to not get a little glimpse of like these awesome cultures and like gorgeous music and really cool folklore. I think that's the biggest thing you kind of miss out on. Okay. I am. What steps do you think that the dance community as a whole can take to, you know, be a force for good in that respect? Um, just education and sharing and especially being open. 
one unfortunate thing that I've seen a few times recently um, has been online, somebody seeing a video and not really understanding the context or understanding what the dancer is doing and immediately jumping to a point of like judgment about it as opposed to being like, I haven't seen this before. I wonder why she's doing this. I wonder why she's dressed like this. I wonder what's like really going on. I've seen that happen a couple times recently. And I think the best thing we can do is be open <laughs> to learning new things about the dance and also just be open to other perspectives you might not have considered before because this dance is not black and white. Like it's very complicated and there's so much variation depending on where you are and what you're doing and who you learn from. And so I don't know, that's the thing I would like to see, to be honest, is just people having a more open mind, I guess. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And then, you know, thinking about the folklore piece, um, and again, this is like stuff I've got on the brain because people keep saying this in very quiet ways. Um, you know, this is, it just keeps coming up and up on my radar. And one of the things that I found kind of tricky about this is, you know, finding sources of information. Because often if you say to a belly dancer, do you know any folklore, they'll say, yes, I know Saidi and do like a cabaret cane piece, which is often perfectly good awesome cabaret cane piece, but often we don't get deeper into the folklore because we don't know where to get it. Um, do you have any suggestions on finding that kind of information? Um, just a sec. Okay. Um, this is a really good question. <laughs> um, because folklore it's a really, I don't know, it's a hard subject to approach even within Egypt. And my favorite person to explain this is uh, Sahara Saida. I love how she breaks down the context of dance in which you see it, especially regarding folklore. Because you're right, like in so many cases, the quote unquote folklore we're seeing is a troop converted into oriental and then being done by belly dancers so it's not invalid but it's also not like the the actual folklore that it's coming from it's not like the pure unadulterated <laughs> um it's not the information we need. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly um, you don't need to be doing grapevines to know where Saidi comes from. <laughs> um, it's kind of a hard subject because, to be honest, most of the folklore teachers we have now are Rada troupe or Kalmea troupe inspired. So, like, there's always some some mix. I think. Um, I think the best way to get information on the real down home like 
village folklore is to talk to people who have really made an effort to go out and actually find those things. My teacher Habiba had done that with the Banat Mazen dancers for her Gawazi pieces. Like um, she had gone out and studied with them a bunch of times in, I think, the late 80s or early 90s or something like that. Um, and obviously, like, Sahara has, is a great resource for things like that. I know Aisha Ali took a lot of really good video footage and musical recordings. There's a bunch of uh, American dancers who, who have made an effort to go and do that. But I do think finding examples of, quote, unquote, like, real folklore um it's definitely difficult like you definitely have to go seek it out and to be honest that's one big um interest i've had being in egypt is going and documenting some stuff like that because it's not easy to find like you have to go out and find it for yourself and and uh take videos so that's a project I'm I'm working on right now. I'm trying to um, seek out um, a lot of folklore and try and get pictures and um, videos and talk to the people a little bit about the the dance in the background. Cool. Well, we're going to have to move on to our question and answer pretty soon, but is there anything that you wanted to talk about or bring up that I didn't ask you about? I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, whatever, you know, my favorite question. Whatever you question... guys want to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, one question I like to ask everybody is, you know, we just had this great conversation, but if people walk away with just one thing, if they remember one thing and take it to heart, what would you want that to be? Um pretty much what I said before about just having an open mind um, and trying to see things from different perspectives. When you watch a dancer for the first time, to do it from a place of interest and support as opposed to jumping to maybe a preconceived idea you had about like what things should be because to be honest, the more I travel and the more I learn, the less judgmental I become and the more open my mind becomes because you start to see things from so many different angles and you learn things that you really had no idea about before. And it's it's amazing. Like, it's so fun to learn all of these new things about this dance all the time. Every day I'm learning something I didn't know before, and I think that you can miss out on a lot of that if you have a, a mentality of, like, that's not how that should be. I know what this is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So an open mind and um, listen and try and see different perspectives because this dance is, is very complicated. There's a lot of variation. It's all awesome. Um, 
it's all really fascinating. And the more open you are, the more you're going to learn. And I think you're going to enjoy this dance more if you have this kind of mindset. Awesome. And if people want to learn more from you, how can they do that? I try to keep a pretty good schedule up on my website of where I'm going to be teaching workshops. Um, I'm traveling a bunch right now. I will be doing a fair amount of trips to like Canada and the States coming up soon. Um, and I also do online classes. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking for some time in my schedule to film a bunch more um, classes right now and pop those up, but I still have some. And you can always message me on Facebook or email me through my website. I'm, I'm very friendly. <laughs> I like talking to people and nerding out about dance stuff. So feel free, nice. please, please to, to reach out. And you've also got some really great instructional DVDs. I want to put in a plug for those. Yes, <laughs> I'm bad at promoting myself. I have a bunch of DVDs and one just came out where I kind of talk about the base folklore steps of a few different styles and how those have shaped a lot of modern belly dance technique. That was kind of a nerdy project that was really fun to do for me. <laughs> so I have not watched the DVD yet. I bought it, but it just arrived. Um, but I did take a workshop with you or touched on some of that stuff and it was really, really helpful. So I'd like to especially plug that one. Um, it seems to me like that might be a really good place for people to start dipping their toes into folklore and kind of get a sense of, you know, which, you know, of the many root dances might I want to explore first. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to go ahead and open this up for questions and answers. So if anybody has a question that they'd like to ask, um, if you're on the webcast and you don't have a mic and speakers, you can type that in uh, in the question box on the right. If you're on the phone or on Skype, you can press star star to unmute yourself and we would love to hear from you. So if you've got a question or if you want to share your favorite takeaway from this, we would love to hear it. I will try to answer in a concise way. <laughs> it is now 3.30 in the morning. Yeah, we are super and... grateful that you're calling in this late. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's okay. Um, the funny thing is, um, I'm usually up this late for work, but yesterday and today I, I took off um, to go to this oasis for a day or two. So I'm chilling out here um, with some palm trees around. We got up early to go uh, drive around in the desert. <laughs> so I'm a little sleepy today. Nice. It looks like we've got a caller who's showing up is coming from Portland. Hi there. Yeah. Hi, it's Shining. Um, Hi, it's Shining. Hey. Hey. Oh. <laughs> I have a couple questions and an observation um, that are kind of compound, so I'll try and be as concise as possible. Go for it. Um, the first question I have is regarding, um, I'd say, like, your thoughts and experience on your not necessarily your own, but determining our own legitimacy in approaching teaching on the national or international market. So 
so I guess part of that would be, I'm curious how you started teaching nationally. Like, did someone ask you or did you start to like contact different festivals or things like that in order to, um, to like cross that bridge and get started teaching outside of your own city? Um, and if other people mm -hmm. are interested in that, how do, essentially like, how do you know that, like, if you feel like you know enough, but you're not really, like, nobody knows who I am, you know, like, no, you know, like, nobody's going to hire me. Like, I don't know how to, how, what would you suggest crossing that bridge? I think a lot of, when I started doing workshops, it was mostly local stuff. And a lot of that was through word of mouth and also me attending a lot of local performances um, and doing shows. At a certain point, I really did make a conscious effort um, to get myself out there a little more. I decided to go do like some showcases in some bigger events that more people came to from around um, like from farther out around the country would come to. And I made a big effort putting a lot of content online, um, lots of videos. Um, I've been very lucky, though, because people have, um, I haven't reached out much on my own. I've had a lot of people come to me for my opportunities. But I have, like like I said, made that big effort to really put myself out there at different festivals and different places, um, as well as put a lot of content online just to get your face and your name around and just being very friendly and networking with people at events and and online. I think both of those things are really important. Um, so I... I didn't make a big effort to reach out. I mostly got people coming to me, but I did put my effort in like putting myself out there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I hope I hope that was <laughs> that was a helpful answer. <laughs> yeah, and like regarding you know the your like determining if. I guess, I don't know if the essential question is if you're ready to be teaching on the national or international market or like, you know, getting, say, like, so name recognition is a big thing, but it's not always a positive thing, right? Like, how do you instill positive name recognition so that people want to hire you, um, like, when you're starting off not being known about, I guess, maybe that you answered that, I'm not sure. Um, let me think. <laughs> uh, I still don't feel ready for a lot of jobs, to be honest with you. I think, I think it's something that you're never going to truly feel ready for, especially if you're, you really care about what you do. Um, I think it's good not to have some self-doubt, but just to have that voice inside that's like you can do better you should learn more you shouldn't stop learning like I think it's a healthy thing to have inside of you 
So I wouldn't wait for that point to be like, okay, now, now I'm ready or wait for somebody to tell you, just get out and do it. Um, and if it works out great, and if it doesn't continue to dance and continue to have fun. Um, I think being successful in this business, it does take talent and charisma, but a lot of it is, is also luck. Um, it's not an easy answer <laughs> to say who's going to, who's going to make it and, and who isn't going to make it. Um, but yeah, go into events in a professional manner, interact with people, be very friendly, be very open, be very respectful. I've found that just my attitude that I have with people will definitely give them a good impression and encourage them to want to work with with you. Besides the dancing and teaching skills, I really I really believe that that can give you a really good reputation on its own. Um, just showing people that you're coming from like a professional, respectful place as a dancer. Like I said, I hope this is helpful. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so the other question I have first is um, an observation about linguistics that might be helpful in some of the things that you and Nero are talking about. Um, I think essentially what you're the point you're trying to make is something I've been thinking about a lot recently that the core value system um of say what was what was the core value system in the 70s in American oriental is no longer the core value system that the current international um dance community has and it also doesn't match the core value system that middle eastern audiences have for the dance um so my question about that is really um you were saying something you know in terms of education uh and and making it more holistic it it is part of our duties to or our search should be to find this core value system but when the Arab and Middle Eastern audiences' expectations are changing so rapidly, like you were saying with the techno shabi and these new um, venues coming up where they don't necessarily want to see um, artistic classical interpretations of rock sharky, but they're more interested in just poppy uh, entertainment streams that have really been influenced by this sort of global culture. Um, where does that leave us in this search for that core value system that's kind of rooted in dance as it was in the 60s and 70s and 80s? Um, yeah, I'm not, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> No, it totally does make sense, and I think it's a really important point to make because it's completely true. I think a lot of people have the habit of kind of getting stuck, not just style-wise, but like in a certain era, um, and it's totally cool to have your preferences as far as style goes, but it's also important to recognize that like art is 
living and breathing and evolving and not just what we do in the belly dance community, but it's it's the same where it comes from. The traditional dances will always be the same with little variation. But on the commercial market, that's where you see rapid change in many different ways, like different trends in costuming and different movements. But to be honest, like I find that the core values are really rooted in like the social dance and the folk dance, which you don't see as much evolution in as you would in like the the commercial entertainment like realm of the dance. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what I'm curious about is um, regarding like the social dances, I, I'm I'm wondering if you've observed this because in my own experience, the last few years dancing at some of the, um, the, the folk festivals and, and also in like places like hookah lounges where um, they're owned by uh, Persian or Arab owners when you bring up those traditional social dances, they're kind of like, oh, they they like the recognition of, you know, oh, you you know our dance, but it's also viewed as very old fashioned. Like some of these things, it's like their great grandparents did or their grandparents, and aren't really relevant to people in their like twenties and thirties anymore. Um, mm-hmm. so I guess I'm kind of wondering, like, where is this solid balance between us? needing to know that information um, to have that sort of cultural understanding and also, um, I guess, being interesting to our audience or like not being viewed as old fashioned. I'm not sure if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. Um, I don't think that what you have to do is perform the traditional dances in a traditional way to kind of like appeal to those audiences even the younger generations and this this is probably completely different also depending on if you're in America or not because you might be getting second and third generation people who like are from this culture um, like their heritage is from this culture, but their whole life has been spent in the States. You know what I mean? That can completely change what we're talking about because they didn't, they might not have even grown up with this music. Um, but definitely in the countries of origin, people do, even if it's a younger person and they're not like exactly inclined to older music or traditional stuff, they still grow up hearing it and being exposed to it and dancing with it and seeing people dance with it. So if, even if they don't like, even if that's not what they would go do at a nightclub, they still recognize it. It's still inside of them. Um, Especially here, you put an old song on, even if it's not what they're into, like they automatically know it. They automatically know how to move to the rhythm. It's just like embedded in them because they grow up this way. Um, 
So it's not so much having to know the exact dances. It's more of these subconscious connections between movements and musical stylings. And a lot of that, oh man, I could go on a really long tangent. <laughs> I have about the connection between like certain folk movements being connected to certain rhythms. Um, so it's, it's not always like a specific song. Even the modern songs, they're using the rhythms that they've been using forever. You know what I mean? Even the Shabi and Mahargan, it's still a maksum underneath. So there's still some old basis in these folk and social dances, even if the younger generation might not be able to recognize that and say it to you. Still in the modern stylings, in some capacity. <laughs> Does that make sense? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I think that's the end of my question stream for the moment. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Thanks, Shining. All right. It looks like we've got another caller. Uh, you're showing up as coming from Bakersfield, California, but if you're on Skype, that might not be true. Hey, can you hear us? Okay, so we've got a caller from Cal uh, California. It looks like you unmuted yourself. If you're still there, say hello. All right, in the meantime, uh, we've got a typed in question from Candice. She says, how do you manage your energy on the road when teaching internationally at festivals? I've been lucky to be invited as a keynote at a few festivals and I find I crash at the end. Do you just get used to it or do you have any secrets to share? I also crash at the end. <laughs> um, no. Um, I am starting to try and develop some, like, good habits on the road. Um, getting a lot of sleep before I leave for a job if I have time. Um, I try to get booked on overnight flights, especially on my way to somewhere, um, so that I can sleep on the plane, get there not let myself sleep until nighttime wherever I am and sleep a lot. Like I try to immediately get on the schedule of that country. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, I try to immediately get on the schedule and I really make sure with my sponsors that they know I need a lot of time to rest because sometimes in the excitement of bringing a teacher, you're like, Oh my God, we're going to hang out and oh, we're going to do all these classes and it's going to be so great. And you do workshops all day, but then they want to take you to dinner and they want to do all these things, which is awesome. And it's so much fun, but at the end of the day, you're still human and you get really tired. So one thing that I've found helps me a lot is set really clear, um, not boundaries, but just saying in advance, like, hey, I get really, really worn out from my workshop. So it would be really great if I'm getting up at this time in the morning that you make sure that I'm like back to the hotel at this time at night so I can get this much sleep. Um, me and a couple other dancers I know, I know we have that like in our contract, actually. Like, you have to let me sleep this much. <laughs> per night 
um, because, yeah, in the excitement of planning an event, sometimes that um, kind of slips away from you. And not just on the sponsor's side, sometimes you just get so excited and really wear yourself out. But if you're doing it on a regular basis, you got you have to be sensitive to yourself and your body's needs because it is a very exhausting thing being on the road. Um, so yeah, I sleep as much as possible and I make sure that I have like a set amount of time every night to either just chill out by myself in the hotel and get some quiet time or like really hard sleeping time. All right. Uh, Candace says to said, thank you. That's great. I know I get so excited to hang out too. So make poor choices about sleep. <laughs> yes, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks Candace. That was a good question. All right. We've got somebody in San Luis Obispo, California, presumably. Hi there. Hi. This is Majida. Hi, Hi Sherazad. Hi, Nadir. You? you can mute me because I have little disturbances around me, but I'll quickly go into my question. We've been talking about audiences a lot, and so I am. I was born and raised in the Middle East, but I didn't dance over there. But I dance over here in the West. I have noticed a lot of some videos where the dancer is dancing, but the audience is predominantly male. So my question might be a little bit feministic. Hopefully it's not too challenging. So my question is, is it uh, mostly the nightclub scene? Like I have seen uh, teachers who are taking groups of girls to, say, Dubai, which is where I was born and raised, or other Middle Eastern destinations. And it's just you see a beautiful girl, but there is like, you know, wealthy men, you know, enjoying, it's probably a hotel, I'm not sure. So what's it like, really? And does that bother you? Uh, so that's, is that my, is my question clear? Yes. Yeah, all right. Yes, so, and it's a good gonna, question. <laughs> all right, so please mute me because I have um, uh, guys, kids around. <laughs> okay, I'll go Thank ahead and do that. A very good question, and it's something that you have to tackle when you enter the world of professional, like commercial, let's quote unquote commercial performance. Um, especially, I'm just going to talk about Egypt, but every country it has its own rules and its own variations, even in the states, like certain venues are going to have a certain kind of clientele and a certain way they want you to dance based on that clientele. In Egypt, this is especially true. And you see so much variation here. Um, there are most of the stuff that we're used to seeing. Let's start with this. Most of the stuff we're used to seeing video wise of belly dancers in Egypt, we're usually seeing the nicer um, boats or hotel venues which have like a big stage and the band and you get to do a more artistic show the audience is a lot more mixed there might be families um, women and men together but there are also a lot of venues here that are a lot more focused on late night nightlife partying, drinking, like 
throwing money, all of this stuff. And this is where you see a lot more focus on like the sexy aspect of the dancing. Yes, the audience is going to be more predominantly male. Um, and the dancers are going to be dancing in a way more provocative way in more provocative costuming. So you see a huge range here as far as that goes. And it has a huge effect on how the dancer styles herself and how she works for sure. Um, so it's definitely not just a mixed family thing here. Depending on the venue, it can be like a very, very sexy thing. <laughs> and you have to be honest about um, how you're going to see a dancer in this culture. Most people aren't used to seeing women and revealing stuff. So I think it's pretty, it's like a no-brainer to say that, of course, the guys are going to be looking at the dancer in kind of a sexual way, just based on the fact that she's a beautiful woman dancing up on stage in a revealing costume. Like, even in the more artistic venues, it's kind of hard to deny that that is on people's minds to a certain extent. Not that it's going to be everybody, but, I mean, it's an undeniable aspect of the dance <laughs> here, at least. All right, I'm going to unmute you for a second. Uh, would you let us know if you had any follow-up questions? No, that's great. Thank you very much. Awesome, thank you. All right, if anybody else would like to ask a question, you can press star star to unmute yourself or type it in on the box on the right. Oh, wow, we've been at this for almost two hours. Can you believe it? Oh, my God. <laughs> it feels like 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And I could I could talk about dance all day and all night. It is so complex. <laughs> we'll have to and do it I always another have time. So then. many things running through my brain. Oh, my God. I awesome. just hope that my thoughts have been concise enough for you guys. <laughs> All right. Looks like we've got another question from Shining. Yeah, I have lots of them always. Um, kind of a follow-up. <laughs> Me too. With a <laughs> a follow-up with the last one. Because um, it's something I've been wondering a lot about, too. Um, and it sounds like you were saying you kind of always like the a little sexier costume. So it, it sounds like you might be naturally a little bit more comfortable with that sexual sexual quality or like your own sexuality and how it's present. But I, I'm really curious, like if you've had any challenges with that and or if you have any suggestions to people, like knowing that that is a part of the industry and a part of the expectation in the entertainment and at part of the industry, right? Versus like the dance community, which doesn't necessarily expect or want that. Um, kind of how do you come to terms with that uh, expectation and, um, and I don't know, feeling comfortable and safe in an environment in which that uh, is going to be present? That makes sense. No, it does make sense. Um, I think it's very important for each dancer to decide first what you're comfortable with. Um, not just 
like venue wise and like who you're presenting yourself to, but how you present yourself. It's really important to be true to yourself and not try to force something you're not comfortable with. Um, I've, yeah, I've always been like pretty comfortable with, with my body. Like I really don't mind showing skin and being expressive and being a little sexy and cheeky on stage. Every dancer develops her own like style in this way. Like stage personality is its own whole thing to to talk about. And if you look at different dancers, you see such a range. Um, some dancers are more cutesy. Some dancers are super serious and dramatic. Some dancers have a sexier side. And I think that's really just based on your personality. And all of it's valid. And it works for different venues. Um, as far as where you actually decide to go with it, again, I think has a lot to do with your comfort zone. But um, in my personal experience, everywhere that I've worked, um, you will, you have no control in general as a woman over having crappy experiences with things like harassment in general, outside of dance. We have no control over this. You could be in a niqab and get harassed. Um, so of course, you might not have control over that situation happening or not, but I got a lot of really good advice early on from other people in the industry, not just dancers, but singers being like, look, I think you'll be able to avoid a lot of um, bad experiences if you conduct yourself in a certain way, like show up. Sharza, did we lose you? The last thing I heard was show up. I wonder if we might have lost you. Okay, I think we might have lost Sharzad. Um, let's give her a second and see if she reconnects. And if not, it might be a good time to call it a day. We'll see. All right, let me go ahead. All right, do we have you again? Yeah, I think like every certain amount of time, it just like <laughs> automatically, my phone's like, stop it. <laughs> That's your phone telling you it's time to go to bed, maybe. <laughs> All right, so why don't I have you finish your thought, and then we'll cut it off there. That's <laughs> no, okay. Um, where was I? Yeah, I've had a lot of really good suggestions from different people, and a lot of it was, like, stuff I didn't even think about. They're, like, you can inadvertently send signals, and you're not even, like, realizing it because this isn't your culture. <laughs> um, Do you have examples of what so... some of those things might be? One of the funniest things that caught me off guard and happened right away was someone wanted to take a picture with me. And I was like, okay. So I like put my hand around this person. And the people that were with me were like, no. 
no. And I was like, oh, my God, what did I do? What have I done? Because they reacted, like, really strongly. And they're like, never have a picture of you touching, like, a man. And I was like, wow, I never really thought of that before. <laughs> Little weird stuff like that. They were like, you can send a lot of signals in little ways like that. Um, So there might be some subconscious thing that you're doing you don't realize. Um, Also, it helps to be careful about who you're working with and just be like really sensitive about your surroundings. Try not to go into situations you don't fully understand, like general stuff like that that should kind of be common sense but sometimes you don't fully like think out or vet things um before like jumping into them because we're dancers and we're just like woo this is gonna be great uh so yeah it's it's definitely a complicated part of being like a commercial performer especially in um some middle eastern countries where um there is sex work happening in a lot of the venues where dance is happening, even if they're not actually connected. Very uh, complicated. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Shining. Um, I think we had better cut this off here. Um, I do want to acknowledge that Alyssa asked a question about what your favorite rest day activity is, but maybe we'll have to take that offline. So sorry, Alyssa. All right, and thank you so much. Specific answer out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Sharzad. Thank you, and uh, I just want to say because um, sometimes I feel like I have a hard time getting my head around everything that I see. Uh, It's a lot to process, but anyway, um, I really hope that there was some good information here for you guys. I I try to explain as much as I can, but my own opinions and perspectives and experiences change um, so rapidly because of um, all the experiences that I'm having all the time. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's four in the morning. <laughs> my brain is going crazy but I just I just really hope that I was able to be concise and, and give some some interesting information for you guys and feel free to reach out awesome thank you and let's thank our sponsor one more time once again that's the belly dance bundle so if you want to check out the heavily discounted bundle of online belly dance products including some stuff from me and other clubhouse guests you can do that at bellydancegeek.com bundle and we do have a giveaway with finger symbols and my online course as part of that um, but the giveaway is closing on wednesday september 27th at the end of the day so if you're listening later check this out asap and our next call is coming up on thursday 26th my guest Phoenix of Denver is going to be talking about how to use internal work to boost your stage presence. And this is the end of our call, but that doesn't mean that the conversation has to end. We've got a private private Facebook group just for Clubhouse members, and I'll send out an email shortly with a link to the invitation. Um, There is a delay for approval just to make sure that you are actually a dancer so we don't get any creepers in the group. 
And I'll also include a link to the call recording if you'd like to listen again, as well as a link to Shahrzad's website and a few places where you can get some of the other resources. We're also going to include a link to our feedback survey. So if you have any ideas for topics or speakers or improvements that I could make, I would love to hear from you. And the last thing I want to say is that this is the come on in kind of clubhouse, not the no boys allowed kind. So if you know somebody who would like to join us, you can invite them at bellydancegeek.com clubhouse. And until next time, happy dancing. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. For more geek-tacular resources, check out bellydancegeek.com.